Hello, this is Where's Home Really, with me, Jimmy Famarewa, where well-known names give us a peek into their heritage and culture to help us discover what home really means to them, and thereby perhaps also understanding ourselves, our neighbours and the modern world a bit better too in the process. In each episode, I'll be asking my guests to share four key elements that provide them with that unique sense of home, revealing their entertaining, eye-opening or deeply emotive personal stories along the way. Those four elements are a person, a place, a phrase and a plate. For me, perhaps unsurprisingly, it would definitely be linked to food. I think it would probably be just the sound of my mum putting plum tomatoes into a screaming hot pan downstairs, maybe humming a church hymn to herself, and the scent almost kind of coming up through the floorboards, the thwack of her spoon on the edge of a pan, and that just kind of drawing me out of bed on a Sunday morning. But what will today's special guest pick? Here's a flavour. Every aspect has been so challenging, but I rise because I need to put my flag in the ground. I visualise myself winning. When you're a warrior, you lead your entire team to victory. It's all the women in my kitchen who've been with me for 10 years. This is their battle too. Today's guest is a chef, restaurateur, and qualified lawyer who turned her back on the British courts to learn more about the cuisine of her homeland in India. She has since launched her own hit restaurant in London, Darjeeling Express, now in Carnaby Street's Kingly Court. And she is both the first British chef to be profiled on Netflix's Chef's Table and the first ever chef to be included on Vogue's list of 25 most influential women. Asma Khan, welcome. How are you? I'm very well and very excited to be on this. I feel like we've spoken quite a few times, haven't we? And it's like we're not quite at Frost Nixon levels, but we've been in, <laughs> I've interviewed you a few times. And uh, it's just so lovely to see you again. And I feel like this concept, this show, speaks so much to the themes of your life and work. So I'm really looking forward to, to hearing what you've come with, to hearing your thoughts. I always learn so much every time I speak to you. But I just wanted to start off, actually, with the title of the show, Where's Home Really? One of those phrases that there are a lot of ways that you can answer it, that you can approach it. The idea of your actual home is something that that you can be called into question for. It, it can be soothing, but it can also be presented as a challenge. What does that question remind you of? Well, I have lived longer in this country than I have lived in India. But despite that, home is still India. And home is where my parents are. They moved houses from when I got married and I moved to England in 91. They moved very soon after that into my father's ancestral home. And that's not where I grew up. But I realized then that it's not the bricks and mortar that makes a home, it's the people. I have no childhood memories of that house. I didn't go to school there. I didn't play in that courtyard. And yet, because my father and mother were there, I felt this is home. And it's very strange because I always thought, you know, emotionally, I'm very linked to Calcutta. I cook the food of Calcutta. 
And so that would be my natural home. Or London would be my natural home. But I've never had to think about it so deeply because home is not just a casual term that I'm going home because it is much, much deeper, more layered. It is that absolute core of the roots that ties you down. It's the anchor in your life. And I thought a lot about it and I realized that it is actually where my parents are living now, where I didn't even grow up and I didn't live. I love that idea of it being linked to a specific person and where they are and there's almost like a an aura or an essence that they imbue a certain space with and I think you're absolutely right that sense of home is something that is maybe carried in other people what is the person that represents home for you it has to be my mother with with apologies to my father I could meet her in any place and that sense of homecoming is being close to her and her touch and being with her would make any place home. So yeah, it's a very important part of feeling this sense of unburdening that I am a child again. We've all forgotten that feeling that you're without responsibility. You don't have to play a role. You don't have to put your mask on. You don't need to adjust your microphone where you don't need to do anything where you are nothing and you are so free that only comes from being with Ammu. Somehow she takes my burden off everything. <laughs> That's so lovely. And again, I, I can totally relate and I'm sure so many people will as well. Has that relationship and that kind of strong affection, has that ever been challenged? I know that you're quite honest and upfront about your status within, you know, your family being a, a second daughter and that you had to sort of fight to be regarded in some ways. Has that ever put a strain on your relationship with your mother and that sense of home that she embodies? No, it didn't. I I heard from so many people whenever I got into trouble would tell me that, oh, your mother cried when you were born. She doesn't really love you. And it was a way of, of hurting me and really, really, it shook my world. It never put a strain between Amu and me because whenever I went to her, her response was always, I love you very much. They are lying. You are very precious to me. And then when I was three and a half, I remember when my brother was born, she never celebrated. I come from a royal family. The arrival of a male in this context was not just a son. It was the heir, the heir to everything. And totally did not celebrate his birth. And somehow I realized then that irrespective of what everyone says, that I was the unwanted one, that I disappointed everybody, that when the blessed boy was born, nothing changed. And she treated me exactly like him. So there should have been strains but because she was so absolutely firm in her love for me, I really could not allow this to penetrate through me. Despite the knocks that other people gave me, telling me often, because it wasn't just that being our second daughter, I was fat and dark and not very pretty and not graceful. And that was so different from how girls were meant to be in my family. And I constantly got ridiculed and constantly told 
no one's going to marry you. You're so ugly. You're so fat. Don't go and play cricket outside because you'll become black. And when you're black, nobody wants to have you. And so I had to deal with that as well. And my mother was phenomenal. She would come on and tell everybody, anyone who says this to her, you know, they're not allowed back to play here. That's a big thing, you know. And they don't get fed either. But the other thing was that it also helped a lot that my sister, who was everything that everybody thought I should be, she was fair, she was beautiful, she had long hair, she was graceful, she was slim, she was absolutely beautiful. She was this beautiful princess. And my sister would always come and hold my hand from the back and tell me, you are the warrior princess. You're the Chasi Rani. Because there's a princess in Indian history who fought the British and went out on horseback with a sword drawn and the men followed her. And she told me, you are the warrior princess. Is that the phrase that, that kind of brings you back to that idea of home, that almost incantation that you are the warrior princess and you've carried that through life? Absolutely, that is my phrase because it's this whole idea that you don't lose. I mean, I'm just going through this. I'm struggling to get my place open, my restaurant open. I had to push it by a week. But we're having to face huge hurdles. I am bruised by the amount of times I've fallen over this whole process. It's been absolutely soul-destroying. I have been defeated on so many different aspects of trying to get this place open, starting with the money, with the cost of living, with, you know, staffing. Every, every aspect has been just so challenging. But I rise because for me, I need to put my flag in the ground. So when you are victorious, that is how it's going to end. I visualize myself winning. Because it's not just that when you're a warrior, you lead your entire team to victory. This is the whole of Darjeeling Express. It's all the women in my kitchen who've been with me for 10 years. This is their battle too. So if I fall and I crumble, they're not going to be able to fight. Because that's the thing that, you know, this is an important part of being a leader, that you take everyone with you, but you have to be the strongest one who doesn't stumble. I'm not always strong, but I have learned how to put my mask on and come back in, radiating power, because that is not for me, it's for them. It's for my team to feel that it's gonna be okay. Because this is something that many of us do unconsciously. And I think that I learned this from my mother, and I'm sure your mother's the same that when things go really wrong, they transform into these goddesses of strength. And this is the thing that, you know, I, I want to be like Ammo. I want to be that powerful, you know, figure in so many cultures, African and Asian, of these women who lifted everyone around them up. And I may not become that in the end, but I aspire to become that powerful figure that everybody takes strength from. And I am running on empty right now, especially. I've been through a lot, especially in my family recently, but I feel undefeated in the end. 
that fortitude and that ability to shoulder these things, you know, I think of my mum and that definitely stems from her heritage, her idea of home, her notions of tradition, what we come from, what we can sacrifice. I always kind of wonder to what extent, you know, can that be stifling or limiting in some ways? You talk about what you were faced with because of how you looked or perceptions about you when you were growing up. That's That springs from culture as well. And I wonder, do you think that you would have been able to be the Asma Khan sitting before us now if you have stayed in India, if you hadn't have come to Britain? Absolutely not. London made me where I am. I am from the East and I'm from the West, but we could never have had Darjeeling Express in any other place but London. London is the most incredible city. It is literally gave us the strength and gave us the space because from the roots down, we grew from a small sapling into this powerful tree where we can now give cover and shade to other women who want to get into hospitality and cook. So I think that this this transformation is only possible in London. And this is the one uncomfortable part of my culture. We do not have an all-female restaurant with women cooking who are home cooks in our part of the world. And I want to know why. Who is stopping women from coming into professional space? Because our women, like so many women, and I'm sure your mother as well, they make cooking look effortless. No one thinks they need to pay us for our roti. This is the problem. And in London, people were willing to pay and were, you know, embraced us with open arms. It's not Netflix came much later. So when we were nothing and nobody, Londoners embraced us. And this is the power of London. And I will, you know, always be grateful. The making of me, even though I don't still consider London my home, is London. London gave me the platform, the stage, the soil, and the strength to be who I am today. I presume that this sense of appreciation for British culture and what it's given you is something that you've kind of had to like maybe make your winding way through. What was your initial reaction when you first got here? Oh, I thought it was an awful country. It was so <laughs> cold. I came in January and anyone who's been to Cambridge in January knows, you know, that little river froze and it was just freezing. And I had never seen Hollywood films in Calcutta because we had a Marxist government who banned all American films. Were there any examples of British culture that no, stuck no, I, out in your I, mind? Any, any frame of reference? I mean, had? My Fair Lady. I watched her on repeat <laughs> because I had a VHS, you know, the cassettes. My Fair Lady and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And I love the Beatles. I love the Beatles. And I just kind of, I loved all their songs and I didn't understand a lot of references, but it kind of made me feel that, you know, this is, this is what is this country all about, you know, people are like the Beatles. It was a real shock. It's also a very different time, you know. Now you can Skype your dog in Delhi, but that, you know, pre-internet time without mobile phones, I wrote letters home. My father would write letters to me. My mother never wrote to me. She wasn't very communicative when it came to things like writing or speaking. 
she wasn't affectionate. She never hugged and kissed me. So when I used to see mainly white people hug their children, I used to think, you know, in public, I used to be fascinated thinking, you know, wow, that person is hugging their child. I don't know, it's our, at that time, our culture where people wouldn't hug and kiss their kids at all. I've noticed now things have changed in India, that I see my cousins embracing and cuddling their kids. But I don't remember being cuddled or kissed or held my hand. Well, that's an important little point. Other cultures, other heritage, a broader horizon in terms of your experience can change what is seen as normal within your culture or within your heritage. Welcome back to Where's Home Really? With me, Jimmy Famarewa, and my lovely guest, Asma Khan. What is your choice of plate? I imagine this was the toughest one. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, it's hard because it's like asking me to pick, you know, my favorite child out of my two sons. But here there are many, many options that I could take. I think in the end, I would pick, and this is so predictable, biryani as my plate because Biryani is something that you make when you have your plan there. I mean, it's not like the kind of rubbish that they give you in restaurants here, where they fake it, you know, they put a little bit of rice, gravy, and they put it in a pot and put something and they make it look like. Biryani is made in a seriously big pot. We're talking about kgs of meat and rice. Every tradition has this classic meat and rice dish, which is for mass cooking. So biryani wasn't just the fact that I love biryani. I could eat biryani any time of the day. I associated that with family, but more because we had mainly girls in the family. This idea of, you know, the clan of women that we hung around together. And what was so beautiful about this time that we ate biryani, usually it was a wedding. This was my kind of should have been my worst time because I would have come out looking the worst because everybody would comment on my unpainted nails, that I wasn't very graceful, that I didn't look nice, that I was fat, that I shouldn't be eating anything at all, if possible. And then all my graceful, beautiful cousins and sisters all looking like so beautiful. But it was just the time when they would not try to dress me up. And I love that, that they didn't try and put makeup on me or try and say, you know, wear this or wear that. We used to eat, and then they would take my, their cue from me. They would say, what is nice? Asma, you tell us, because you've got the best palate. Yeah, this was always outside in the courtyard. So in the courtyard, when the food used to come out, because, you know, you sh just the family is like 200 people. Uh, so forget the wedding where it's around 5,000 people. So they would always tell me, you know, you try everything, you tell us what to eat. And now I realize that, they made me feel important. They gave me power. The weddings, you know, was just about food and food and more food and music, which is the two great passions of my life. I sang in weddings. I sang the songs when the henna was being put on the bride. And everyone would say that in her voice, there is this layer of emotion that people would, so many people would cry. There were these very kind of traditional songs about leaving home and being uprooted Thinking of culture and notions of home, are there kind of positive impacts that you think that the Indian culture has had on British culture? And is there kind of a positive that you see there? Oh, the biggest thing is we changed the palette of the nation. 
uh, this, because for most people, if you talk to them who are in their 60s, even, you know, like late 50s, if you ask them, what was your first experience of spice or Indian food? They will go into this kind of, you know, uh, wallpapered curry house and how they were completely blown away and their kind of journey into exotic food. We have first advantage. And I think that's a very significant part of why, you know, our food is where we are. And I know people like to take pot shots at, you know, the curry houses, saying it's not authentic, that is Bangladeshi. I stand on the shoulders of the giants. They opened their curry houses in a very racist 1960s, 70s. They had skinheads breaking windows. They had people leaving without paying. No one gave you a loan. So they set up one way. They created an empire of curry houses. And I think that this is like incredible because even though it's not Indian Indian, it's Indian food, but there were many Bangladeshis. But this is a South Asian success story. And this is, I think, our big contribution has to be the food. I want to get onto place. We maybe touched on it right at the start when you were talking about it being really tied to wherever your parents happen to be. But for your fourth element, we wanted to talk about a place that particularly evokes and reminds you of this sense of home. What is it for you? It's the courtyard where my parents live now. In the city where they live, it's extremely, extremely hot in summer. And then it gets crazy cold in winter. But we sit outside with the fire going. And my mother normally, you know, she's by nine o'clock, she's in bed. So it's usually my father and me. And then my father would bring me a kind of a, a pillow and he would tell me, lie down, look up at the stars because it's an open courtyard. And then, you know, my father's very Sufi and he would recite poetry. And this happened every night that I've gone home. So he recites poetry, he sings, and he would talk about justice and all the wrongs that happened in history. And the one thing that had a very powerful impact on me in these courtyard discussions, Apu used to always tell me that a lot of injustices ended, slavery, colonialism. Someone refused to give up her seat on the bus. Segregation eventually ended. And he used to always tell me, Look up into the stars and imagine that you are that person who says the first word. And that is how you battle. The battle cry should always be for someone else who is underrepresented, who is voiceless, who has not got power, who is hungry. And those discussions are etched in my soul. So it was this thing of home and night. And often we would end up sitting by the fire. The fire died out and we used to see dawn. And Abu used to always tell me that, you know, the, never imagine that the darkness will continue. Day will always fall a night. And it's all this kind of deeply spiritual uh, conversations. Linked me up and... You know, you, you dig so deep, like I'm going through a really hard time. And I keep visualizing that courtyard, being home, Abu sitting next to me, humming something, and me seeing the first lights breaking through the dark. And I am literally visualizing that now as so much is going wrong. 
in getting my restaurant open, I am visualizing the light breaking through the dark. So it's that that place, that courtyard, and the open skies that for me is so important. Asma Khan, that was so fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for your time. All the best with the restaurant. I will be there and we will eat some biryani. Absolutely, I look forward to that. Thank you, Jimmy. Asma is such a force of nature. I've spoken to her a few times before, but that felt like one of the most profound, interesting, deep conversations that we've ever had. She has such a beautiful spirit about her and a forcefulness. She's so frank in her uh, evaluation of the environment in which she was raised, about how her mother and her father expressed their love. It just absolutely put me there and there were so many things that I could relate to and I, and I think that a lot of other people will be able to relate to. I feel like I know her so much more on such a deep level. Well, that's it for this episode of Where's Home Really? With me, Jimmy Famarewa. An exploration of the different rich and colourful elements that help define us and give us a sense of where we belong, which isn't always one specific place. Join me next time when I'll be inviting another special guest to share their four elements that reveal Where's Home Really? for them. And why not follow Where's Home Really? on your favourite podcast platform? And we'd love to hear your thoughts, so why not pop us a comment or review and spread the word. From Podimo and Listen, this has been Where's Home Really? Hosted by me, Jimmy Famarewa. The producers are Tayo Popula and Aidan Judd. The executive producers for Podimo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White. And for Listen, it's Kelly Redmond. Mm-hmm.